Listener Production. Hi, Katrina Blowers here with you. Today's briefing topic actually came from you guys, and it's about the biggest living cost affecting all of us right now. Our lease was up for renewal at the 12-month mark. Um, we were currently paying $680 per week, and the landlord requested the price increase to $725 per week. That was way more than what we were expecting. Um, we managed to negotiate the price increase down to $705 per week. However, that was still very stressful because there is definitely a place for rental homes. However, when you're paying the price of a small mortgage, it's very, very disheartening. The stress of keeping a roof over our heads as we hit a crisis moment for young Australians on housing affordability. We're speaking with someone today who reckons they've got a roadmap on how to get us out of this mess. We just need the government to listen. And with a PM who grew up in social housing, maybe this is the moment we turn a decade-long pattern around. That is our briefing topic in just a sec. It is Wednesday, the 13th of July. Let's dive into today's headline with Antoinette Latouf. US Vice President Kamala Harris will address the Pacific Islands Forum in Fiji today, launching America's biggest Pacific push since World War II. So this is a pretty major intervention. Harris will be joining virtually and is set to announce the US Peace Corps will return to our region as well as a new Pacific-wide strategy and $900 million for economic development. Yeah, so this pivot from the US is in response to China's increasingly assertive Pacific agenda. The Chinese government signed a security deal with Solomon Islands back in April and they pushed for a regional economic bloc in May. China also wanted to send a delegation to today's forum, but they were snubbed two weeks ago. Anthony Albanese will fly to the Fijian capital of Suva today, joining Foreign Minister Penny Wong, who is already there. Leaders talked about the challenges the region faces, climate change, COVID and the recovery from COVID, both of which have fallen harder on this region than on many other parts of the world, uh, and of course strategic competition. Foreign Minister Penny Wong. The PM will recommit to a new $6.5 million Pacific Defence School, as well as more money in aid. Australia is joining the US in diversifying renewable energy supply chains so they aren't so reliant on China. Currently, 80% of solar cells are produced by China and it's forecast by 2025 that figure will be around 95%. I worry that China has big-footed a lot of the technology and supply chains that could end up making us vulnerable if we don't develop our own supply chains. That's US Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm there. Canada, France, Germany, Japan and the UK are among nations that have made similar commitments. This is after Russia's invasion in Ukraine sparked a global energy crisis and there are fears that China could do something similar. Yeah, so Katrina, there isn't much detail on what exactly the deal means yet, but it's likely to focus on supporting the integration of variable renewable energy and the development of hydrogen and carbon dioxide removal. So, yeah, that'll include direct air capture technology. 
Australia's top doctors are pushing for us to wear masks and they aren't ruling out mandatory measures. Now, this comes after Victoria's health minister rejected advice for a mask mandate amid those soaring cases, while New South Wales is advising people to wear them indoors if necessary. I think what people are hearing is, it's really serious, go get your, your shots. But look, it's not serious enough that we'd consider managing masks. That's what they're hearing. And really the messaging should be, we really want you to wear masks and things like mandatory masks are the sort of considerations we'll have. Like they should still be on the table. We don't rule it out. AMA Vice President Chris Moy there. Meantime, free rapid COVID tests for pensioners will end at the end of the month. I mean, the price has come down dramatically. You know, they were running on average at sort of $24, $25 per test in January. They're now down about, uh, to about $8 a test. Yes, their health minister, Mark Butler, there on nine. I don't know. I think they should still be free. Eight bucks is still mm. a lot to a lot of pensioners. So this is all as Omicron continues to surge. 4,000 people are currently in hospital right across the country. So many people I know have COVID again for the second and third time, mm. but it seems as though people's care factor has dropped significantly. Like once upon a time, if someone got COVID, there were like care packages and people would drop off soup and everybody was really mm. concerned and looking after their neighbours. And now it's a bit like, oh yeah, okay, you're on your own. Especially now that the isolation rules have changed. I think there's, yeah, there's definitely a mindset that it's not as severe. But yeah, I know people who are getting very, very sick. So it's not something that I want to catch again. The gender pay gap is costing Aussie women a billion dollars a week. That's according to a new report by economic consultants from KPMG who put the gap at almost $52 billion annually. And gender discrimination on its own is contributing 36% of the gap. So that discrimination factor does not include career interruptions to care for family. That's at 20% or women who go part-time, that's accounting for 11%. The report showed women at the start of their career experienced a gender pay gap of 6% and that rose to as high as 18% as they progressed to higher management. That's a really big amount when you think about what people in upper management get paid. Mm. 18% of that is huge. Meanwhile, another report just out from Treasury has found new mums earn less than half of their pre-birth wage in the first five years, and they also have lower job satisfaction. I can vouch for that. I know many people who go back part-time after having a baby, they don't get nearly as many opportunities, and this motherhood penalty can persist for the first decade after childbirth. Even more reason why men need to get equal paternity leave. And Katrina, what the KPMG authors did is they broke down, like as we heard, certain percentages and attributed it to a range of things. So there was, um, you know, people's type of employment, their labour participation, if they did unpaid care work, what their household makeup was like. And because there was a certain amount that they couldn't explain, they put that down to gender discrimination, which is why they got to that 36%, which is more mm. than a third of that disparity, according to KPMG, is is just because a woman is a woman. Wow. And the Emmy nominations have dropped this morning. Uh, no surprises here, really. Succession and Squid Game are vying for Best Drama, along with Ozark, Better Call Saul and Stranger Things. And Succession has the most nominations at 25 nominations, Squid Game at 13, 
also gaining the honour of becoming the first non-English language drama series shortlisted. I know, Katrina, did you watch that? I could only get through a couple of episodes because I found it too, like, gory and bloody. Yeah, it was pretty hectic, wasn't it? But I did get hooked, I've got to admit. Stranger Things is the thing going on in our house at the moment. Uh, Ted Lasso and The White Lotus topped the comedy and the limited series categories. And Aussie actress Toni Collette has been nominated for her role in The Staircase. So much binge-watch to be had in this list. Yeah, I love it. I maintain that when I grow up, I want to be Ted Lasso. He's just amazing. All right. Thank you, Antoinette. We will catch you later in just a sec. Annika Smithhurst is back to join me to talk to a group who believes they've worked out a pathway out of Australia's housing affordability crisis. The words housing affordability crisis, I feel like they've been said so many times over the last few years. I've certainly said them in, oh gosh, it feels like thousands of news bulletins. They've almost lost their punch. But if you need a hard stat to pull you back into the raw emotion of what the true impact is, consider this. A rental affordability snapshot carried out just a couple of weeks ago by Anglicare Australia found less than 2% of rentals are affordable for a full-time worker on the minimum wage. Less than 2%. And for someone out of work, Annika, they can afford 0%. At the top of the show, we heard from a briefing listener about just how much stress this is causing. So Anglicare defines a listing as unaffordable if it accounts for more than 30% of a household's budget. And with interest rates still going up, this crisis is only expected to get worse with more and more Australians pushed into homelessness. Yeah, so what does all of this actually mean for you and can we navigate our way out of this? Aaron Malouf reckons we can, but it's going to take effort and commitment. Aaron is the Head of Government Relations for Anglicare and he joins us on The Briefing now. There are fewer rental properties available than ever before and rents are up. So how did we end up in this somewhat perfect or imperfect storm? That's a great question to start with. I think it really is about the uh, the paradox of uh, of our modern times. We've been through a period of two and a half years of COVID where we've had so much assistance into the economy and now we have uh, a combination of wanting to restore normality. We have the uh, interest rates finding their own way. We have inflation finding its own way and then wages and cost of living that have been left behind in that process. All of a sudden the pressure is on to find ways of dealing with both the long-term disadvantaged who have been in queues for a long time for housing and the new disadvantaged, people that are being affected by what we're seeing in the economy at the moment. There are things that have been almost institutional for 10 years plus in the social welfare system where people have been in queues for assistance, in particular for affordable housing and a whole lot of new arrivals because of the new economy. Yeah, so we've all seen those massive rises in the cost of renting a home, particularly over the past year. What is the main reason for that? It can't all be about covering interest rate hikes for landlords, or can it? I think it's led by that. We're being told that the cost of building has been on the rise as well. Uh, And just the availability of space, the sense that particularly in metropolitan cities, to be able to assemble enough land to be able to establish affordable housing environments, particularly where you don't really want to be profiting from that, is 
a really awkward thing to do. The infrastructure is simply difficult to find. The space is simply difficult to find unless you have a profit motive. I wanted to know how the difference is in regional versus rural areas. Often the narrative is that you go to the city and it's expensive and you can't find anywhere to rent, but increasingly this is seeming like something that's happening in rural communities, in regional towns. Is it all because of tree changes? What's happening with the rental crisis in regional Australia? The rental crisis in regional Australia, I wouldn't say it was because of tree changes exactly, but I, I think because you had an extended period of drought and the rural economy sent people from the country to the city. Those people in the main haven't found the type of relief in the city that they were looking for, so people are drifting back, and that's creating an enormous number of, uh, of rental problems as properties become fewer and, and, and far between. And again, you're just looking at the economy the way that people have a profit motive in that space. So Anglicare did a report earlier this year on rental affordability across the eastern seaboard, and it was quite obvious to us that in the major rural centres, people were struggling to find affordable housing. And if you're a single parent with young children in particular, there is basically nothing available for housing-wise, for rent-wise, that falls into your affordability bracket at the moment. And uh, the reasons for that are again, part of this paradox or the economy that we seem to be falling into at the moment. I'm a single parent and I had a look at those stats and that really hit home for me. It actually made me feel quite anxious looking at those figures. And you just got to look at places like Byron to see where this is really biting. So you mentioned that report and that report also says the new Labor government has inherited an emergency, but this can't be fixed overnight. You want some tax changes. We'll get to that. But is there anything the federal government could do immediately to help out renters? Uh, Well, I think if they were able to at least look at this conflagration of social welfare issues that need attention, it's not just housing affordability, but also that sense that, as I said earlier, there is a very large number of people that have been long-term disadvantaged and an apparent arrival of a new group of people, a new demographic. I do not like that word demographic, but I'm going to use it. A new demographic of particularly young people that have struggled coming out of the COVID crisis and will continue to struggle until such times as government look at the range of problems that these people are uh, suffering with. So it's not necessarily all about housing for them. It's about the whole package, their health, uh, their ability to earn, and uh, their ability to sustain their earnings, to remain in full-time work and to be able to uh, make ends meet for their families. Now, Katrina touched on it there. There are tax reforms you'd like to see, including capital gains tax and negative gearing reigning, both of those in many have tried before. Can you explain to us how this would actually help and where the money could be better spent? I think tax reform is going to be an issue that's going to be uh, debated long and hard in the next two terms of government. Obviously, in order to make affordable housing a prominent issue, we're going to have to look at achieving some form of tax review. Now, Anglicare Australia have put out a report that we've called the Roadmap to Affordable Housing. And uh, what we're really searching for there is a whole range of issues to be joined together, not just tax reform on its own, but a whole range of other issues 
that require government's attention. So their own ability not just to look at the way that people might benefit from a spreading of tax and a movement away from the advantages of those that seek to uh, profit from property development, but also this sense that we need some social responsibility so that every time that a property development issue is raised with local governments, state and other authorities, that some degree of affordable housing is included in those developments. We're looking for a trial of secure leasing models for mainstream tenancies, and that's just a really sophisticated phrase for saying that we need a a New York style of rental control in properties. And there are properties that are available, particularly in the inner cities. But uh, the fact of the matter is, is that those properties that are available are simply out of reach of those that can afford them. So having a rental control style policy in the same way that uh, New York City does ensures that landlords can have long-term tenure and long-term income. And it also assures that those that need housing uh, can afford it and have it controlled for a known period of time. We're also looking for reforms for the Commonwealth Rent Assistance Scheme. And that's really long overdue that there's a whole lot of social welfare issues that need to be joined to this. So not just merely in the rental front, but also allowing our, um, our social welfare payments to keep pace with what's happening in the economy. And I'm obviously referencing inflation there again, but the, the sense that we are all about to go through another heave in, in the cost of living, particularly with utilities, is just bearing more and more pressure on those that are already finding it very tight to pay their rent or to pay their mortgages. A lot of the reforms you want about what the federal government can do, but with housing, we know that there's levers the state and even council level could pull. So what would you like to see, I guess, state governments do, perhaps opening up land and even at that more micro level with local councils, what can they do to assist, especially in these regional communities where a lot of people are flooding in and there's not a lot of places to live? It'd be great if there was a national forum on future housing developments in this country so that states and territories can align local government and align local development authorities. One of the really terrible aspects of speaking into policy in this space is that one local government area can be so different to another and the difference between postcodes is not very far at all. In regional areas, it's a little different. There's a lot of space to cover and not a lot of that is developable as as housing property. But the sense that if we had some common policies, if we had some reliability in uh, known development application planning procedures, laws and guidelines, that uh, that would be a pretty good start for this. So that those that are in control of the properties can at least look at some consistency in terms of what's expected of them and, and their developments. So it's pretty well known that the new PM grew up in social housing. He's promised to build 30,000 new social and affordable housing properties if he was elected. What impact will that have and how long would that take? That would be a good start, but uh, with all political promises that are made in elections, the politicians need to be held to account. To a certain extent, we're still waiting for this government to realise that they actually are in government and not in opposition and and move to a place of action. There's really no sign of any of that happening in our sector at the moment. So I think in the first instance, if I could uh, be encouraging of those new ministers uh, to actually break from Canberra and go back to their electorates and really listen hard on this issue because it's alive and well and being spoken about just about everywhere I'm going. 
So that was Aaron Malouf, who's the Head of Government Relations from Anglicare. What always gets my head spinning about these topics, Annika, is there is no quick fix. There is no kind of immediate thing that people can do to get relief in this space. It requires a really coordinated long-term approach. And I don't know that that's all that palatable for any government. What do you think? Yeah, and different levels to work together. And we saw through the pandemic that's not always the case. This isn't just something the federal government can fix overnight. It really needs the buy-in from states and councils as well. And in tomorrow's briefing, we are even more diverse and multicultural than we ever thought. That's certainly the outcome from the latest census figures. So how is this going to shape Australia's future? Listener.